Whatever the assignment, timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various editions. If there are any men in the room watching this programme, they might like to get up now and leave, because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about knickers. Flash! Exclusive! Here's front page news! You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist? Now what is that? That's not the full story now. This is Byline. Welcome to Byline, the United Ireland podcast companion series where we talk to brilliant journalists about the stories that matter and that interest them. This month, we're talking to the New York Times' Elizabeth Patton. Elizabeth is a reporter for the style section of the New York Times, covering fashion and luxury sectors in Europe. She also covers um, fashion weeks in London, Milan, Paris. Before joining the New York Times, she was the fashion and luxury correspondent at the Financial Times and also a reporter at the FT covering breaking news, breaking financial news generally. Um, And we're going to be talking to her about her work at a time when the fashion industry has kind of been scrambling like so many industries to deal with how the pandemic interrupted manufacturing, the seasonal cycles of products, the live aspect of the industry and consumer choices uh, with everyone basically existing in loungewear for a year. How does the fashion industry, how has fashion industry journalism changed what stories matter and what does the future of the industry and its reporting hold? Welcome to Byline, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. And you're starting off with the easy questions there. <laughs> um, well, I guess... Let's go, back first, let's go back first of all, um, just, to, just to yourself and, and how you got into journalism, where you grew up and, and how you entered the industry. Sure. Um, So first things first, I never wanted to be a journalist. Uh, It wasn't sort of a burning passion from an early age. Um, But when I reached the end of my university degree, which was English, you know, I started looking at it and thinking that it was an interesting path to follow. It was 2009. There were no jobs. Um, so, um, I did what many people were doing, which was just sort of ferociously knocked on doors, started writing, um, and landed a two week placement at the Sunday times in London and just kept kind of building on that and building on that. There was no formal contract. Um, every two weeks I would go and knock on the managing editor's job uh, door, sorry, and say, any jobs, can I extend? And then I just got lucky and they were launching their website, um, and they offered me a six month contract on the business desk to set up the website. And it was a great experience learning, you know, a, how, you know, websites are built from the ground up. Um, and also, um, getting to work with some great, uh, editors at a very early stage of my career. Um, and then I moved on to Sunday Times style, um, and was their first digital assistant. Um, and that gave me a sort of year of learning about the nuts and bolts of magazine journalism. Um, And I was having a great time. Um, Again, I never thought I was going to stay doing fashion. Um, But then an opportunity at the Financial Times uh, emerged. And I think because I had that kind of business grounding by that point, well, six months, not really a grounding, but I definitely uh, been exposed to some of the fashion industry and the business uh, sort of behind it. Um, I applied and I got it. Um, And so I ended up going to New York with the FT as their first luxury reporter. Was that intersection of like business and fashion, were, was that something that you were really interested in or was that where the opportunity kind of lay for you at the time? Yeah, kind of both. I mean, 
you know, in, t- in that period, which was about a decade ago now, um, it's hard to believe, but there was actually very little coverage, particularly from traditional media titles um, of the luxury industry, which was growing incredibly fast at the time, um, or, or the fashion industry um, in, in a sort of way that wasn't rooted in sort of magazine journalism and covering sort of trends. Um, or, or kind of characters, it, it, there was very little. I mean, business of fashion was was just a mere glimmer in the eye of, of uh, Imran at the time, Imran Ahmed, the founder of business of fashion. Um, so I think with the FT, we, we had an opportunity. My editor there, Vanessa Friedman, who is now my editor at my current role as well, I think really saw this opportunity um, to, to really provide um, sort of deep dive analysis and, and think pieces and investigations kind of on the commercial side of this industry, you know, which was also a very global story. Um, and for my part, you know, I think, as I said, fashion was never the end game for me, but I quickly recognized um, that it was a really great jumping off point to basically writing about anything you wanted, whether it was, uh, you know, innovation in manufacturing or diversity or gender or labor rights or, um, you know, or trends or interesting characters. And I mean, the fashion industry is, is full of interesting characters. So it certainly just seemed like a great place to sort of dig in, I guess, and get started. When you went into the FT uh, 2013, was it? Yeah, 2012. 2012. Okay. So that was a really volatile period, I suppose, for the global economy. Um, And I suppose a transition period as well. The recession, the Great Recession had already taken hold, yet in certain places, the economy was kind of swinging back around and the luxury market was probably rebuilding in a way. How would you characterize that time with regards to your work? What kind of stuff were you covering and gravitating towards? Yeah, I mean, so so that period of time, as I said, I'd, I'd, I'd moved to New York. So it wasn't a period where I focused um, too much on Britain. Um, so from a, my perspective, you know, my bread and butter stories were, first of all, corporate America um, and, and looking at the big retail names that were emerging there or consolidating power there. You know, this was a time when um, a lot of contemporary names in fashion, like Michael Kors, was just doing the most insane business you've ever seen because of these accessibly priced handbags that he was, you know, putting through the market. Um, Tiffany was also doing extremely well. So those kinds of names. But I was also really focusing on the emerging markets, which, you know, were fueling this meteoric growth, particularly China. Um, And, you know, actually, luxury had a temporary blip in 2009. But the growth rate that it showed in the years um, thereafter was really, really, um, it outpaced a lot of the uh, growth seen in other sectors. So in some ways, it was, it, my, my eyes were kind of moved away from Europe, despite Europe being the heartland in many ways of the fashion business, and looking and learning about China, Brazil, India, um, and looking at, at, at that kind of wave of consumer sentiment that was just giving this business the most insane top line growth. Um, and at that time, I think as well, the media was suddenly clocking that actually this was a sector, a relatively young sector, because don't forget the conglomerates that we know today, like LVMH and Caring, they only really emerged in the 1980s. So the modern luxury industry is quite quite a new one. Um, I think they sort of, my editors were sort of like, oh, no, maybe there are some interesting stories here. And, you know, so that was also a period, I guess, where I got my first front pages as a, as a journalist and was taught by some great editors how to put a story together um, and, and kind of really make people look at this industry in a new way. Mm. 
When you talk about the luxury market, like for people who've really don't engage with um, either the the business side of the fashion industry or even you know the consumer side themselves, like what do you, what do we mean when we talk about the luxury market or the luxury industry? Sure. So. Um, I would say that the luxury industry uh, is dominated by several conglomerates, as I said. Um, One is LVMH, another is Kering, and another is Richemont. And these uh, three conglomerates own most of the names that you uh, have seen on airport billboards or department in department stores or that you buy from that are across your social media. Um, you know, everything from Louis Vuitton and Dior for LVMH to uh, Kering and Alexander, um, sorry, Gucci and Alexander McQueen by Kering, Cartier uh, for Richemont. Um, and, you know, these brands are obviously um, peddling extremely uh, uh high high price tag goods um with with juicy profit margins for these companies um and and are just seen as things that people want to to buy and as sort of status symbols um what what does your handbag say about you or why would you buy a, a tiffany bracelet um and even though there's a lot more scrutiny placed on this industry um and a lot more questions around why we buy what we buy these are this is a sector that's been doing extremely well um until of course this year and obviously it's different although it has this intersection with the fashion industry um there are many different characteristics to it from from sort of the fast fashion players or the high street um and I guess the last thing I would say about the conglomerates is obviously they hold the reins of fashion weeks in uh, London, Milan, Paris, New York. There's the brands that twice a year create runway shows that send down new collections, um, which um, either go on sale in six months time or, or traditionally have had a large influence on the sorts of styles and trends that, that then trickle down to more affordably priced brands um, and retailers. Mm. Let's talk about those um, big power brokers again in a second. But in terms of the nuts and bolts of your job at the Times, what does an average week look like and how is it organised? Yeah, I guess, you know, um, pre-pandemic, it looked pretty different. And um, it was, you know, a main part of my day-to-day job involved going to fashion shows and events, interviewing celebrity designers and producing coverage around new collections. And I was probably covering fashion weeks for at least three months of the year, um, mainly in Paris, but kind of all over, really. Um, So I was on the road a lot. And then around that work, which was sort of firmly rooted to the fashion calendar, I would then plot a timeline where I could produce investigations, um, which is an area of work that I, you know, I work very hard on, you know, fashion has one of the murkiest supply chains in the global economy. It's also one that's, you know, largely based on cheap labor to maximize profits. Um, And, you know, it was really important to me, it remains very important to me to create time to produce reporting that publicly holds this industry to account. Um, and then lastly, my day-to-day sort of breaking news stories, designer hirings and firings, obituaries, you know, whatever, what have you. Now, I guess your question originally was, what does an average week look like now? Uh, I still try and do all of that coverage, but I guess the big difference is that I'm doing all of this from my living room in activewear, <laughs> like, like most people. Um, and that lack of travel has been a big, big adjustment really, because you know, a lot of reporting historically for me has been rooted in being somewhere in the moment and seeing things with my own eyes um, or interviewing people in person. And, you know, a lot of your coverage um, feels quite different when you can't be there on the ground. Um, Mm. 
And I guess what does that, what else does it look like? I spend an extraordinary amount of time on Zoom, like most people um, spend a lot of time doing meetings with New York, um, which I didn't actually used to do. I used to sort of be a bit of a lone ranger, but I guess now everybody has to dial in. Um, it, it slightly changed that. I guess one question I get asked a lot about my average week um, is like, do I have a quota of stories that I need to hit? Um, uh, you know, do I write 10 a week or what have you? And I guess the answer to that is, I think some outlets have that, but um, at the New York Times, that's not the case. Um, and it just depends on the time of year. Um, so it could be that I have to write four stories a week because that's what the news cycle dictates. Or it could be that I go quiet for three or four weeks and I've been working on a single story and that comes out at the end of it. Um, mm. So I guess that's one thing with journalism. Often no two days are the same. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a strange time for everybody, I guess. And there's some hallmarks to my working day or working week that I think everyone has right now. Yeah. Let's talk about how the pandemic has upended the industry and the accompanying journalism. It's such a huge topic and it's, it's kind of funny, I suppose, in a way that the, um, the events in fashion and manufacturing in fashion were kind of, the harbinger at, at the beginning of the the pandemic, be that the kind of documented um, manufacturing and trade links between Northern Italy and China and how, you know, trade fairs were ongoing and people point to different moments for uh, talking about how, how the virus um, initially spread as it did all over Europe. But f- like... It's such a it's such a huge um, upending. Um, not like there are other industries, I suppose, like the live events industry and the live music industry, who have been completely upended as well. But could you take us through maybe uh, some of the main components of how the industry has been upended from kind of March twenty twenty? I know this is a mammoth <laughs> kind of ask. You know, I, I mean, I would say at least two thirds of my stories in 2020 were about the pandemic and its impact on the industry. You know, and as you touched on, uh, you know, it ranges from trends and design to what we've been wearing at home to supply chains and, and, and bankruptcies. And it, it's been a real mess. But I guess if you started from this time a year ago, um, the fashion industry literally ground to a halt in the dying days of Paris Fashion Week, where, you know, as the headlines started coming in from China and from Italy, you still had this very bizarre circus of people sitting on the front row uh, of Paris Fashion Week, looking at one another nervously, wondering what was going to happen next. And and what did happen next was, of course, mass shutdown. So factories everywhere just closed overnight in many countries. Um, workers were sent back to their to their home villages. Uh, you know, a huge majority of workers in the fashion supply chain are migrant workers, so they don't often live. You know, where where their workplace is. Um, and I think what is interesting about that moment was there were already rumblings in, 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 in kind of the consumer mindset, partly driven by social media, a little bit by kind of media coverage, um, where people were thinking more about where their clothes came from. You know, there was a lot more focus of, on sustainability in the last 18 months, a little bit on labor rights. But I think that the, the devastation wrought by the pandemic um, which was being covered in real time via social media and media on on those at the very bottom rungs of the supply chain 
was impossible to ignore. I think people really woke up to the fact um, that 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 at the bottom of the supply chain, there were, you know, millions of people who were suddenly being shortchanged um, when big household name retailers from Zara and H&M, um, frankly, to some of the luxury names as well, suddenly stopped paying the factory owners um, overnight. And I think initially, you know, my first couple of months of coverage there was looking at that fallout, whether that was um, in, you know, in Bangladesh or in India or in Cambodia and Vietnam, largely in Asia um, and largely remotely. Um, but of course, there was also a business story because the reason so many of these factories were shutting down was, of course, because there weren't consumers buying these trends and, the, and these products, the, the retails, uh, sort of bricks and mortar Stores in, in the West uh, had closed their doors and, and actually most consumers were in a state of trauma. They didn't initially want to buy anything. So that meant that a lot of the um, particularly accessibly priced businesses who operate on very thin margins um, were going bankrupt. And, and there were sort of household names that we'd always assumed would be there suddenly disappearing. Um, so I guess, you know, from that side of things, supply chain disruption and, and what's going on there has been a big side. Um, and then, you know, design and, and trends, which is something you touched on as well. Uh, there are no fashion weeks anymore, but more specifically, you know, just like we touched on um, in terms of how I do my work, designers were completely disconnected from their design studios. They weren't um, able to put together collections in the same way. So September... We definitely saw new new collections, new clothes. But, you know, another part of my job and looking at the way the pandemic has impacted the industry is what, what are we seeing now being put out into the public domain? Is it a reflection of, of the pandemic? Um, is it somber? Or, in fact, it, a lot of people, which was the case, in fact, in September, a lot of people are just like it's business as usual and are producing clothes with the hope that um, by the time they make it onto sales racks, uh, much, of the, much of the disruption of this stage that we're at will be over. Um, and then looking at social media as well and, um, you know, the pandemic has really, really rattled a lot of the institutions that sort of held the keys um, to to the fashion industry for brands, particularly fashion magazines. And, you know, looking at the rise of, for example, influencers, you know, lots of people have had a terrible year in fashion, but influencers are, in fact, um, one group in the fashion industry who've done extremely well. Mm. It's interesting that you're saying that... Um you know, when the kind of bankruptcies were starting and things falling apart, like there's part of it, I suppose, that was in some ways already entrained. Like we've been hearing for so many years about, you know, the retail apocalypse, you know, and obviously that impacts high street brands more than it does luxury. Um, and also this consciousness raising with regards to where clothes are coming from, which is kind of an echo from the, from the 90s, you know, the big stories about Nike or Gap and various factories around that. And then, you know, I, I guess as well, when things ground to a halt in, in the live sphere, you heard a lot of designers talking about, well, actually, you know, something had to stop. We are producing too much. We can't do these, you know, five, six or how many they are um, shows a year and all these different collections that are now filling gaps between collections. Um, how much of this disruption, for want of a better word, was kind of solidified by the pandemic as opposed to instigated by it? 
That's a really good question. And I, I think it's, it's to an extent the former, because as you say, there had been rumblings for some time on the fact that, that the fashion cycle was increasingly unsustainable for, for the workers within it, whether that was designers who were producing 10 collections a year um, or garment workers um, who were being paid sort of bare bones wages to produce endless amounts of clothes, much of which would end up in a landfill. Um, you know, but I guess the question was, was the industry going to be able to stop and and make any of those changes? And the reality was not really. So yes, I guess the pandemic um, provided an opportunity for a lot of people to, to really air those concerns um, and try and and commit towards a more meaningful change. But I guess the flip side for me in terms of whether I think it will result in meaningful change is, is that naturally this, this kind of deep recession that we're about to go into, this incredibly volatile time um, for the world means that there's a lot of desperation out there. Um, and I think that while sometimes there are very good intentions, unless there's better regulation and um, sort of legally binding agreements put in place for some of these companies, um, change is far from guaranteed. And, you know, something I've actually been working on in the last couple of weeks, for example, is is a big sweep, is a, is a looking at a, a lot of the stories that I wrote in 2020 um, and seeing how they've changed. You know, so often as a, as a, as a journalist um, who does investigations, you'll spend weeks or months on one investigation and often you then kind of just leave it behind. Um, you don't necessarily go back. And so something I'm really trying to do this year is, is keep paying attention to the same communities and characters that I looked at last year. And I have to say, in the vast majority of cases, things are much, much worse. They're not better. And what do you mean by that? Is that is that, that companies are going to be so squeezed that they'll start to cut corners with regards to pay and oversight in factories and things like that? Potentially, yeah. I mean, I think... There's, there's two interesting things emerging for me, which is one, the, the sort of dominant storyline in 2020 was that all of retail was in a state of catastrophe. But actually, um, if you look at the company reports, quarterly reports that are coming out now, um, some of these names are actually doing extremely well. And that could be in the US, you know, Walmart and Target, whose apparel sectors have, have been doing extremely well. And here, you know, names like ASOS um, and actually Boohoo, despite their issues um, with the Leicester labor scandal last summer are, are performing extremely well. Um, and that is because, you know, we, we, we've touched on already the, the sort of casual wear, active wear, elastic waistband boom of the last year. Um, those clothes are very, very popular and someone is still making them. Um, the difference is, is, you know, even though the system was broken and flawed this time last year, um, a lot of the safety nets and guarantees that were put in place by these brands before just don't exist or that it's very difficult to monitor and put them in place. Um, so, you know, talking to, to factory workers in Bangladesh just before Christmas, they said, you know, we have to feed our workers, we have to pay them, but these brands who we can see are doing are doing well um, are insisting that we are paid 35 le 35% less for the order. Um, and I think that's that's something that's going to stick around for a long time because because there's this perception that these brands aren't doing uh, well when in fact some of them are are doing better than people imagine. Mm. 
A lot of your work does kind of focus on that, on the supply chain stuff as well and the issues that go along with that. You mentioned Boohoo there, uh, kind of the antithesis of, of luxury, I suppose. Um, yet it's kind of astonishing that even the rolling scandal around that um, and I suppose the latest being uh, the, the Guardian piece on, on a particular uh, factory in Pakistan where workers were paid 29 pence an hour um, I feel as well, though, even though these stories are so shocking, it doesn't seem to be landing uh, in a way that is going to have an impact. Is that is that like I mean, which I find it quite depressing. Um, yeah, it is what, depressing. <laughs> what do you what do you feel about that? Like, why isn't that catching on to the point that you know this company? you know, objectively, you kind of look at it and go, well, this has, this, this has to end. This has to be over. Um, here's what I would say. Overall, I am quite pessimistic about things, but they are, they are definitely changing. Uh, you know, until very recently, both brands and consumers alike could plead ignorance um, about the way in which, in which their clothes were made, um, the way in which fashion was produced. And, you know, we're now in an age where that's impossible. Um, and I think for all sorts of reasons, uh, consumers definitely place more scrutiny now on the brands and businesses that they buy from. Uh, they want their values to be in line with those of brands. And I think you see that from, from various fashion brands, but you also see this you know, with Amazon, for example, you know, people are really looking at these big businesses um, and thinking more about how, uh, how they make their money. Um, I think the danger is, is that um, some journalists, but also, you know, anyone with any influence in a public sphere, people can, can be too optimistic about this. And I wrote a big piece about this last year where, you know, every luxury brand uh, says, basically says that the next generation are going to be the generation for whom, you know, fa sustainable fashion is, is a priority. Um, and I just said, look, for every, you know, Greta Thunberg or, you know, school skipping climate change protester or, or young person who cares very passionately about um, the impact of, of, of the consumer industries on the world. There are a lot of people who just want to look good on social media and they want, you know, new clothes and new trends and, and often they want them at affordable prices. And that's not changing. And unfortunately, even though there is more and more focus placed on uh, the footprint of fashion, on the environment and on uh, communities all over the world, uh, the numbers of in terms of how the fast fashion business is going to grow are astronomical. It's growing. It's not stopping. It's not slowing down. Um, and so I don't think at the moment the way that this business runs is going to change. I think uh, there's still too much at stake for a lot of these businesses, um, which is why I guess then it's very important um, without sounding too self-aggrandizing, but, but, but for people like myself, for journalists to continually keep shining a light um, on abuses of power, structural inequality, um, and the way things are working, so that at least people have the choice to engage with with what clothes they you know they wear, and and 
and why they support the brands that they do and help them make that choice. Because I do think that consumers can vote with their wallets. And um, if they choose to do that, and there are alternatives on the market, uh, maybe that will take us closer to a to a kind of industry system that, that we'd want to have in place. Mm. I think there are massive like savior narratives as well around how different generations will take up a mantle when totally. really... And that's always you know, been the case, hasn't it? Yeah. And I mean, you know, entire generations are not homogenous cohorts who all will think and act the same way. Um, and it does, you know, I think that, you know, actually, you know, there's been a lot of focus on, on Western teenagers, but surprise, you know, Chinese teenagers, Indian teenagers, they think they, they're not all exactly the same. They think differently about how they buy clothes and what they want to buy. Um, and so kind of, I think, we do have to take a very global viewpoint in fashion. It is such, you know, everyone in the world puts clothes on at the end of the day. Um, and it's important to kind of track all the changes across geographies, generations, cultures, if we are going to get a really kind of accurate picture of, of where this industry is, both, um, you know, both in terms of, of positive change and in, in the enormous challenges it faces. Mm. Let's talk about the the big conglomerates then. Um, a lot of people, when they go to buy a luxury item, perceive it maybe to be still, you know, an individual house. Um, But obviously so much power in the fashion industry coalesces around these big conglomerates. You mentioned a few of them. Are two, two parts to this question. Are these conglomerates getting too big? And which ones um, or what, what are the emerging kind of conglomerates? I mean, when I think of, um, stuff like, you know, Montclair buying Stone Island or VF buying Supreme. Um, that seems to be very important uh, as a trend of, of these kind of, you know, just sucking up uh, these very kind of big street style brands. Mm. So just a little bit of, 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 of history, I guess. Um, I think I touched on this earlier in our discussion. The luxury industry is actually a relatively new industry. Even though a lot of these brands that you hear of from Gucci to Dior, Vuitton, you know, are hundreds of years old. The actual structures that hold them together have only really emerged in the last 20 to 30 years. Um, and, and the way that they did that was this arms race um, that, that kind of got underway between these two or three names to, as you say, uh, suck up uh, many of these sort of well-known brands, heritage brands, um, and then pump a lot of money into them to make them kind of like the global juggernauts that many of them are today. Um, and one thing, you know, that, that had happened before, had started before the pandemic, but was definitely accelerated by it, um, was this bifurcation in the market that actually you either had the very big brands that were doing quite well, these very small, very nimble brands that were doing quite well. But if you were left in the middle as a brand, um, you were, you were quite stuck. Um, and it, you know, once the pandemic hit, uh, I think a lot of conglomerates, um, and the brands within their portfolios were better insulated from the fallout because of, of their scale. Um, and it was the sort of mid-sized independent brands that were, were hit incredibly hard. Um, so those conglomerates, as we said, generally kind of control 
a lot in the fashion industry, both in terms of, you know, proportion of revenue um, and how much they generate, but also, you know, behind the scenes, those are the people that pay for magazine adverts or social media campaigns or or dictate the tone for, for fashion weeks. You know, there were still incredibly some, you know, live runway shows in, in the fall in Paris, even though the pandemic was still raging. Um, and that was because these conglomerates said they had to take place. Um, so they have a lot of power. I guess what's interesting is is there are new you know there are new um, power players emerging, and the conglomerates are working out how um, how to work with these these new rivals. And that's you know e commerce players like Farfetch um, is a big one. Depop, um, the resale site, Alibaba from China. And, you know, I think even the conglomerates, which have these huge bricks and mortar store networks all over the world are recognizing that the real winner in the 21st century is going to be whoever controls uh, global luxury sales online. And so you're seeing these new tie-ups um, with these platforms um, and rivalry, sort of rivalries emerging as they all try and navigate and jostle their way um, to kind of a dominant position uh, online. Um, and then you also touched on, you know, other power, you know, other types of power players in these sort of small or streetwear brands. I don't know. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Because I think a lot of what gave some of the smaller streetwear brands their cachet was this kind of exclusivity, the fact that they um, appeared to, to run themselves outside the fashion ecosystem. Um, and actually, the truth is, um, as you touched on, there's been a big M&A race. Lots of them have been snapped up um, by the big conglomerates or by private equity firms. I mean, Supreme, which was probably the best known of the of the streetwear brands and, and sort of really had built itself a very powerful um, following and media presence is now owned by a private equity brand, um, private equity firm, I should say. Um, so yes, I think the, the, the long short of that is that the conglomerates who already held a lot of power in the industry um, are only getting more powerful. Um, but what's also interesting to look at, I guess, is these are these sort of smaller brands, these nascent brands, underground brands that are, that are that are coming out and really building very powerful followings for themselves on social media. And the question is, can they flourish um, as independents, or uh, eventually will they become part of the part of the conglomerate uh, ecosystem too? Mm -hmm. I guess I wonder with Supreme in particular. Um how much is the pandemic or like how much of that is just them cashing out because it's it's very difficult to see how a brand like <clears throat> excuse me supreme can continue to to grow and you know it's become so parodied almost um and and so much of you know maybe well, more maybe supreme a few years ago like orientated around like drop culture and the fact that you can't have like 500 kids queuing outside a, a store on, you know, Lafayette or whatever in, in New York because of the pandemic. How much has, has that maybe impacted um, decisions that these brands are making now that that their, their way of getting, you know, exciting, exclusive items to the consumer uh, has also been disrupted? 
I mean, I would say that um, a lot of the, for example, Supreme was actually bought out by this private equity outfit prior to the pandemic. And I think a lot of um, the luxury market parroting or copying um, trends in the streetwear market, whether that was sort of retail uh, phenomenons like the drop, like you pointed out, or or it literally designs that um, were emerging from the street and skatewear scenes had started before the pandemic. I think mm. what's interesting is um, just a lot of those kind of physical um, events or or ways of, of shopping have just transferred online. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I, I haven't seen Supreme's numbers and, and I imagine they're private now that they're owned by this private equity firm. I think it's Apex, but the, the name escapes me. But I would say that those, those small brands will be doing relatively well. I guess the difference is, is that I think a lot of those brands face this moment where, unless they took on large amounts of external investment, be it from a conglomerate or, or from a, a, a financial firm or like a private equity firm or an investor, they felt that they couldn't scale and scale, you know, scaling up and survival were just kind of inextricably intertwined. Um, but of course that often meant that people grew themselves too big. They took on too many risks, um, and, and found themselves spiraling in this unsustainable way, um, which is sort of related to, to the number of collections and this sort of insatiable appetite for newness that was driving fashion up to the pandemic. Um, and also, in, you know, in 2020, which, which really was the year where the fashion had its worst year on record. I think McKinsey projected the fashion industry was going to lose 90% of its profit last year. You know, there are still some interesting success stories, um, which bear some of the hallmarks, I guess, of that streetwear and skatewear movement from a couple of years back um, of, of young brands or, or emerging designers who are determined to do things in, in a different way. And, you know, one example is Telfar, Telfar Clemens, who is a um, African-American designer um, based out of New York, who has long stood for, you know, financial and racial and gender inclusivity and, and community um, and, and making fashion accessible. And he produced this vegan leather shopping bag uh, last year. Um, and it was just a smash success. I think, you know, it was one of the most searched for fashion items of, of the year last year. Um, and I think that that's a really good example of someone who has never worked in the, in the conventional fashion system controlled by the conglomerates, who in fact is determined to pre present and produce a brand um, that stands at odds with a lot of the traditional foundations of the fashion industry, whether that's elitism or exclusivity. Um, and kind of produce a new way of doing things. So I guess, you know, whilst it's been a desperately difficult year um, for, for so many in the fashion industry, including, frankly, some of these powerful conglomerates, um, it's really interesting to watch this new emerging wave um, of talent coming up um, through, you know, what's been a very dark period and, and experimenting and exploring about whether there is a way um, to, to, to be a power player in this industry just in a different way. Mm. How successful or not successful were all the kind of digital um, fashion weeks and digital shows or virtual shows? I mean, it felt to me that there was a lot of there were so many attempts, you know, to kind of replace or, or innovate or show things in a different way. But I, I mean, personally, I kind of felt that it was quite flat or n not really almost practical to engage to be able to engage with it uh, in in any way that was similar to to kind of the live, the real life experience, I suppose. 
Yeah, I mean, I will say that, you know, one of the last pieces we did last year were the sort of winners and losers of fashion in 2020. And and the conventional fashion calendar was definitely a loser. Um, Look, you know, even though a lot of fashion shows and fashion weeks have become these vast entertainment spectacles, um, you know, geared towards social media, they still do serve a commercial purpose. And and I don't um, judge designers or brands for for wanting to to showcase their their new collections these they need to sell them and, and this is the system which we traditionally had i guess the challenge is is um how to make that compelling when it's purely a digital experience and actually um eight or nine minutes of just staring at models coming down a runway just isn't that compelling online um it, as it so turned out i think you know a lot of the brands, as the year progressed, experimented with format. Um, and I found that the brands that that really pushed the boat out and did something completely different um, stepped away completely from a kind of runway style format were the ones that were more successful. Um, I quite enjoyed Gucci presented a sort of small series last year um, where it had sort of actors and, and scenes with with their new collections on on models or, or actors going. It was almost like a little soap opera, which I really enjoyed. Um, and I found that quite compelling. The other thing I found quite compelling, but this was a, you know, a largely a thing for journalists were those who sent shows in a box. So you would send, you know, material swatches, music, um, sketches um, to the to the reporters that were looking at things um, and reviewing them for, for, for their newspapers or their outlets. Um, but of course, those only went to, you know, 300 people. Um, and, and that left a lot of people still you know, looking for, for how they could look at this new collection. So it's been a real struggle. Um, and I think it's definitely something that the brands are thinking a lot about. I mean, the truth is, I think fashion underest- overestimates, sorry, how much attention, you know, the average person does, does pay to fashion weeks. Um, and I think from my perspective, certainly it's a, an area that I, I would be happy to spend less time focusing on because I think that, you know, today's fashion fans just consume trends in a different way um, through influences, which is a big way um, directly through brand social media accounts. So I don't think, especially with the sort of third wave now in full force in Europe, that there will be any physical fashion shows for a while. And I think that when they do finally emerge when when the vaccine rollout is largely completed, when it does feel safe to hold large-scale events again. It will be a long time before we see the sort of size and scale and ambition of the fashion weeks we saw in the last few years, partly because um, the budgets will have been slashed. Many brands just won't be able to think about putting on the the kind of spectacles that they once did also because perhaps the um, guests and attendees won't be able to fly in the same way or publications or retailers will have will have um, cut back their teams that normally traveled all over the world um, but it's going to be going to be interesting I don't think we've seen the death of the fashion show you know I think a lot of lip service has been paid to the value of in-person runway experiences for the industry but it's doubtful that we'll see anything like that for a long time. Hmm. Before you go, let's talk about um, influencers, because on one hand, it kind of felt last year that, you know, celebrity culture and very kind of hyper consumerism really took a hit and people were struggling for relevance. Um, And, 
even on a very basic level of like, well, if you are, you know, photographing yourself in clothes or whatever, like, where are you going to wear them to? Because, you know, because you can't go to a restaurant or a club or whatever. Um, but yeah, you're saying that influencers had a really good 2020. I mean, obviously, there's multiple layers, multiple categories. And um, when you break down that cohort, um, but but how would you characterize what has been happening uh, in influencer culture um, broadly in 2020 and what interesting aspects uh, or trends are emerging from that into this year? Sure. Yeah. So, so what I meant when I said that, that influencers had had a fairly strong year uh, in 2020 was that, um, let me explain it like this, you know, brands obviously have an annual or a quarterly marketing budget, which they put towards um, advertising campaigns um, to sell their new product. And uh, historically, you know, a, a sizable slice of that has gone into print magazines and traditional media outlets. Um, when companies, um, you know, hit sort of last spring, last summer, a lot of these marketing budgets were slashed. Um, and the people who really felt that were the traditional media institutions like Condé Nast and Hearst um, and kind of the, the, the groups that own the, the sort of household titles um, in the fashion space. Um, but what then did happen was... Um, these marketing teams were looking at the best way to reach consumers. What you know, at a time where they couldn't do flashy photo shoots, they couldn't fly teams all over the world, where there were no red carpet events, it was very hard to do celebrity tie-ups. Um, and the truth is, influencers were there, and influencers can have very low overheads. They just need a, a mic and a light and 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 the clothes that they need to put on their bodies. And and so what you actually then had was a lot of influencers, particularly those with large established followings, um, became the, the port of call for a lot of these brands in terms of how they wanted to spend um, their marketing money. You know, and Instagram is obviously the platform of choice um, for, for for the fashion industry. But TikTok was growing fast, too. And you suddenly saw, um, you know, a lot of the established TikTok influencers like Charlie D'Amelio and Addison Rae um, being picked up by very big houses like Prada to do to do campaigns. Um, I think that what you also touched on is quite right, which is um, there there has been a real change in attitude towards conspicuous consumption, celebrity culture. Um, and so I think what happened was even though influencers were being booked for these jobs, they really had to tread a very fine line. Um, and so you haven't seen many of the, the sort of most high profile players um, splashing the cash or, or wearing, you know, eye-wateringly expensive outfits. You're seeing them in their, you know, cashmere joggers at home. And I think, you know, most of them are very savvy. And I think that they know that they have to be very sensitive in how they present their, their content. Um, and I think that, you know, it's a business that's only grown in terms of its, of its clout and influence in the industry. Um, you know, but one thing that I think has been good about the fact that um, influencer culture has thrived this year is actually particularly in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement in the summer, um, there is a, a great recognition that there needs to be broader acceptance and, and recognition. Um, and there is a sort of broader range of, of influences of all backgrounds and genders and races um, really gaining important followings. And I think what's going to happen is that brands are going to have to invest further in those relationships um, or, or risk being called out. I think that um, the Black Lives Matter movements really roiled the fashion industry um, and it's still undergoing a, a really deep and quite painful racial reckoning. 
internally. But I think that brands will be called out now if, if they don't work with a diverse number of models or influencers, um, if they don't have a more diverse um, employee base. And, you know, I think that's something we're really going to see reflected in the sort of influencers um, and social media uh, personalities that are booked in the in the months and years going forward. Mm. It's also interesting to see some brands um identify kind of what what kind of stuff people were consuming online and pull people from Instagram who aren't involved in fashion and place them within it, like Jordan Firstman doing the Versace ads, yeah. um, which is very kind of, you know, quarantine star vibes as well. I mean, that's an interest considering that um film production, television production had largely shut down perhaps those online stars are going to take the place of, of people that we're seeing less of um, in cinema or in television. That would be, you know, well, yes, I would say that um, it depends on on the talent of, of certain influences. You know, some, some are really talented, um, multifaceted individuals who can do all sorts of things. You know, I, I, one thing I, I had heard and was looking into, which I find quite interesting, is, you know, as you touched on, <clears throat> Hollywood and the television industry had ground to a halt for much of the pandemic. And what that then meant was a lot of celebrities um, who would normally be working were sitting at home and wanting to make cash. And so they've pivoted to influencing. Now, of Mm -hmm. course, there's always been brand ambassadors. You've often had high profile Hollywood celebrities, you know, working with luxury, luxury brands on perfume ads or, you know, whatever, sitting on front row of their shows. But actually what a lot of these celebrities were doing was, was quite literally doing what influencers, fashion influencers have been doing in the last couple of years. And I think that was a, that there's this really interesting melding, isn't there now, especially when so much of the lives we live are online between the entertainment, fashion, music, um, social media industries, which, which was already, underway, you know, there was a lot of cross-pollination anyway. Um, But while options remain somewhat limited in in terms of what people can do, we probably are going to see a lot more of these partnerships taking place. Mm. Finally, Lizzie, thanks so much for for this conversation. It's been really, really um, informative. But what are you kind of gravitating towards now for stories and investigations in 2021? What do you think is very interesting um, or that you're maybe even excited about covering? Yeah. Um, well, I think that there's, there's so many things that we could sort of write about and think about. But, you know, um, as we've touched on in this conversation, um, I, I, I feel very strongly that I, I, I want to focus um, in an ongoing way on abuses of power in the fashion industry. Um, which are widespread and everybody knows that. And I think therefore it's really important to kind of keep monitoring and and paying attention to that. That could be um, in terms of labor rights or exploitation in factories, which obviously is is something I've I've worked a lot on. It could be um, sexual abuse or exploitation um, in in offices and workplaces, um, in nightclubs. you know, ultimately abuse of power happens at every echelon of this industry and it's important to, to root it out. So that will be one area of focus. And I feel very um, lucky to work for the New York Times, which, you know, has often given me the, the resources um, and time that I need to do the kind of stories um, that we're talking about here. But, you know, on a positive note as well, um, there is a lot of negatives in this fashion industry, but I also do love seeing young talent emerge, focusing on that, who will be um, 
driving the conversation, you know, in coming years. And um, I think especially in the wake of Black Lives Matter, especially in the wake of the devastation wrought by the pandemic, um, there has been recognition that we need to be better at spotlighting talent. This, by the way, could be designers, could be uh, stylists, uh, could be journalists, though, as well, and make sure that 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 young talent has a chance to thrive and grow in a very uncertain world. So, you know, that's going to be another area that I that I look closely um, at as well. Elizabeth Patton from The New York Times, thanks so much for joining us on Byline. Thank you so much for having me. 